Welcome to episode 14 of the Camerosity Podcast, the first open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and with me tonight from the middle of Ohio is Mr. Paul Reibold. Is it true of what they say that in Ohio, everything is round on the edges and high in the middle? Uh, yeah, well, after what Michigan did to us the other day, I, <laughs> we're pretty low in the middle right now. Also, from 17 time zones away from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. How have you been lately, Theo? Fantastic, mate. Got the barbie fired up, ready for some great camera discussion. All right. And also from one time zone away, the owner of Volta Coffee, Mr. Anthony Rue. How is business at the shop, Anthony? It's booming. Everybody's like settled down from Thanksgiving and ready to drink some coffee and get back to work. That's great. Uh, last week's episode was something else. Between our special guest, Wes Loader, and both Roberts who called in, the level of knowledge in that show has likely never been topped in any film photography podcast ever. I don't know how we're going to beat that one, so we're just not going to try. We don't have any special guests this week, but we do already have two people in the waiting room. So let's have them join in and see where this conversation goes. All right. We actually have three people who joined in. Uh, I want to welcome back. Looks like Miles Lieback has returned for more discussion. Uh, how are you doing there, Miles? I'm doing well. Good to see everyone. Uh, we have David Goldberg. David, yes. um, welcome, to the, welcome to the show. Nice to wanna, be here. Do you want to give a quick introduction? Um, I've been a photographer, both still in video for over 40 years, worked in the camera barn and camera barn retail stores in the 70s and 80s as a darkroom manager. As I've been a photographer of many aspects, commercial, I think that should do it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Working in a camera shop, seeing all the changes over the years from film to digital has to be something. Yep. Uh, I've, I've, you know, we hear some things from uh, Johnny Sisson at Central. Uh, you know, I've been to other shops too. So it'd be interesting to hear some of your thoughts. Um, but Larry, Larry Effler has also joined us. Welcome to the show, Larry. How are you doing? Thank you. Very well. Do you want to give a quick intro yourself? Well, I'm a amateur photographer now, and my past life, I've uh, worked as a TV news photographer and uh, a short stint as a still photographer for my college newspaper, and um, on the side, weddings, that sort of thing, but I haven't really done it professionally in a long time, and uh, picked up my old Minolta a couple of years ago and got back in. That's cool. It's always fun to come back to film after a little hiatus. While Larry was talking, we had yet another person come in, uh, Malcolm Myers. Welcome to the show, Malcolm. Hello. Nice to be here. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. <clears throat> I'm Malcolm Myers. Um, I'm on the Negative Positives Facebook page. Um, I'm actually in England, so it's um, quite early in the morning here. Wow. Our first um, European caller. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's dedication to show up at yeah. three o'clock in the morning. It's, or... it's, not, it's, it's two, but um, <laughs> no, really all it is, is, you know, you sleep in four hour blocks. You go to bed at 10, you wake up at two and then I'm wide awake. So I have to sit around thinking, what am I going to do? So uh, I saw I, I saw the timing for this and thought, well, if I'm awake, I'll join. So I'm wow, joining. that's awesome. How, how long I'll stay up for, I don't know. But hey, uh, stick yeah. around <laughs> as long as you like. Uh, and if you drop off, you drop off. But uh, sure. if we see. If we see your head flat down on the keyboard, <laughs> right. You'll uh, I'm out. I, I'll mute you so that we don't hear your snores. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, just want to welcome all the, the, the new first time callers. It's, it's so exciting to have new people to talk to. Uh, I don't know if all you guys had a chance to listen to our last episode. You know, we had a, a, an abundance of Nikon history, Zeiss um, shows like that could be recorded for three hours and we still wouldn't scratch the surface. 
So we always have to draw the limit too. Uh, we definitely want to get Robert Shanebrook back again to have more Kodak love. Uh, there's some other experts with specific knowledge areas that we'd like to get on the show and talk about too. But, you know, uh, I really like these kind of uh, open-ended episodes too. We've had quite a bit of great feedback from listeners. Uh, didn't get a chance to go over this last week, but um, James Thorpe says, I've recently been listening to your equally amazing, entertaining, and inspiring podcast and heard mention of the Kodak monitor, one of my favorite cameras. James is actually the second person to mention getting back in, into a Kodak monitor since we've talked about it. Uh, Dwight Anderson says he's been listening to your podcast. They're a lot of fun. Uh, three comments from Rangefinder Forum from people whose names I don't know, but uh, thanks for sharing this. Wonderful group of guests and depth and scope of contents being discussed. Uh, the Hunter says, very cool podcast is a Nikon collector, shooter, and YouTuber. Information is always valuable. Accurate information can be hard to come by. And somebody named Bingley said, I listened to the episode this afternoon. It's fantastic. Interesting details on the history of Nikon and in the intermediate post-war years. We've had a couple episodes uh, go by where I haven't really had a chance to talk to Paul too much because Paul's been picking up some cool things for his uh, for his eBay store. And uh, I don't know, Paul, do you want to tell us uh, any of your tales of, of recentness that you've had? I'll tell you what I what I I was in the photo industry for 33 years. And when I retired as a hobby, my wife asked me what I was going to do. And I said, I really didn't know because I I don't know anything except for cameras, photography. So I started buying and selling cameras as sort of a, uh, uh, a hobby. And it's, it's not really a money-making operation, but it's turned into a, a good fundraiser for some local charities, and it's keeping me, keeps me busy. Right now, I have 651 items in my eBay store. But I, I wind up buying large lots of things from, from either old customers or people that I make contact with. And I, and I don't keep a lot of things, but you can see behind me on the shelf are a few Nikons and a Kodak Ektra and a, a Practina and a few things like that. But one of the things I do try to do, if it's somebody, if it's an old friend or an old customer and I buy out a, an estate or something, I, I try to keep one item from each of the groups just as a, something to remember them by. Uh, you can't see it, but I'll hold it in front of me. Contacts T came from... Uh, one of my old customers who was a doctor. This camera has got black tape all over it. It's missing screws. It's got dents, dings, scrapes. It's just really, really nasty. And it still works. I bet it works, yeah. Yeah. So I keep that. I kept that one to remember uh, Rudy from. And uh, the other one is uh, a Foth Derby, which is one of the coolest little cameras uh, made in Germany. I always thought it because it said Derby, it was English. But it's not. It's it's a German. Foth is a German company. Uh, even have the original lens cap for it. And uh, those are just really cool little. Were they, I think they're eight twenty eight. They're one twenty seven. One twenty seven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they yeah based on the where the holes are in the back of it. But uh, those are are two of the uh, cameras in my permanent collection. Paul, I've always wondered how does that Context T compare, like in size and in function, to with like a Minox thirty five or the Balda 35s or the Voigtlander Vitos that are all that similar form factor? Similar to a Minox 35. It's, it's a little bit taller, and it's metal rather than plastic. But uh, other than that, it's, it's a pretty similar size. I think uh, ergonomically... Is that a rangefinder on it? I'm sorry? Is that a rangefinder on it as well? 
Um, no, it's estimate focus. Estimate focus. No, it's a rangefinder. It's a rangefinder. I'm sorry. Yeah, and then that's a difference between the, the minoxes as well, isn't it? Yeah, because I'm horrible at estimating distance. That's why I, I've never kept a Rolly 35 longer than about a, a two days, just because I can't I can't estimate well enough to to get it to work. I've heard that before from some people who struggle with guest focusing. You know, if, for anybody listening, if you're struggling too, the advice I usually give to people is just start with landscapes. Um, I think why why some people perhaps aren't as good with it is that they, they try shooting like close-ups, you know, and, and low light. And in my approach to it has always been start easy, you know, and then once you kind of get the hang of it, then you could try different things. But um, you know, some people just don't like them. You know, the, the Foth Derby you mentioned is scale focus, although they did make a rangefinder version. Uh, it's really goofy looking, but um, you know, if, if there's anybody listening to the shows who's never shot, a camera, unless it was either an SLR or a rangefinder, it's still worth at least trying because uh, there are still some really fantastic scale focus cameras out there. But, you know, like Paul said, to some people, they're just, it's not worth it to them though either. Well, like the Olympus XA, everyone is hot on Olympus XAs right now because they do have the rangefinder. But the thing is that the rangefinder base on them is so narrow right. that I'm not sure, you know, that the XA2 that's estimate focus isn't actually a better choice for most people. I, I would 100% agree. The XA2 is a better choice. It's also a lot cheaper. Um, the XA has a six element lens. I don't know how they fit that complicated of a lens in that tiny body, but my Tani worked some magic on that thing. Uh, the XA2 is only a four element, presumably a, a Tessar copy. I don't actually know that to be true, but um, it sounds like, you know, the XA is a significantly better camera with the six element lens and a range finder. But um, I, I found myself enjoying the XA too. Like, I feel like I can shoot it faster. There's, there's so much depth of feel that lens has that you can shoot most anything and you don't have to worry about fiddling with this infinitesimally small range finder lever. The throw from minimum to maximum focus is like half a centimeter. It's, it's really, really short and I think difficult to use. If, if I remember correctly, the XA was a 28 millimeter lens. I don't, and I'm the, not sure it was, it was the, the XA2 XA or 35. The three or the four was a 28. I can't remember which. Yeah, no, the, the three is a 35. The four is four the, would be the 20, 28. And it's got macro function as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, used I've the got, XA2. I brought it down. But I, I parked my Nikons and we went to the Grand Canyon and we used that to carry the camera, the light camera and, and the rest water. When I shot basketball, I um, use an XA as a second camera with, and I always tape the, uh, tape the focus lever to the hypofocal distance so I couldn't move it. The Olympus Trip's a nice camera to learn scale focusing on as well. Yeah, I agree 100%. The Trip was produced for something like 20 years or something like that. Just because it was so portable, it was so reliable, doesn't need a battery to work. It's got a great lens. It's very portable. Uh, that's that's another fantastic small compact camera. Yeah, those- and it's very easy, very easy to use because it uses the the symbols for for the for the distance as well. Yeah. So it's very very mm-hmm. simple. Yeah, it's either going to be a portrait, the group of people, or or landscape. And you can see the symbol through the viewfinder. There's a tiny little Judas window where you can see that through the viewfinder. And on the underside of the lens, it's got the actual distance that right. it shows you. So, so if you you start to relate the picture to an actual distance, yeah. you know, you slowly learn what, what. Certainly, I did the trip before the Rollo 35, and I just found it an easier uh, route to learning scale focusing. Yeah, given my love of of, 
of Olympus and of you know, tiny cameras. I can't believe I've never so much as even held a trip before, nor an original pin, uh, which just like blind spots in my experiences with cameras. But uh, one of these days I'll find a, a nifty trip. So I sent you a Miranda. I sent you a Canon. I need to send you an Argus. Uh, now I need to send you a trip. <laughs> I need to check off all of Anthony's boxes of cameras he's never held before. <laughs> what would be your desire for of, of your list of cameras you've never held? Like what, what actually would you most look, be looking forward to trying? Probably a trip or an original pen. Original pen. Yeah. That's one I haven't held. I've had the EE2, I think, or EES. I can't remember some of the, the later variants, but I've never held the original version either. Yeah. So for those of you guys who, you know, have worked in shops before, Paul, David, whatever, um, when when film started to go away, like I think it was pretty obvious the digital revolution, whatever was coming. Was there ever like a point where you thought it, it will come back or did it just did one day you wake up and go that era is done? We need to adapt or, or die. Like, did, did you ever think that this resurgence we've seen recently would ever happen or no? No, I, I knew right away, or pretty much right away, I saw the handwriting on the wall where I was working as a graphic artist and doing something called planograms. We were using uh, mini labs to photograph store shelves, uh, making several trips a week. I say, well, if you can spend a thousand dollars for, you know, like I said, a two and a half megapixel camera at the time, you can use that instead. And then within a month, the camera paid off. Oh, that was, oh, geez over 20 years ago. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's many industries where uh, uh, a huge change like that occurred where it was so obvious. It, you could you could look at automobiles and say like, you know, carbureted to fuel injection. That was more of a evolutionary change. You know, the uh, automatic transmission from a manual transmission that, you know, took a long time, but you know, it, it would you say like between 2000, 2005, that, those were the years of the greatest change, or was it a little bit later than that? No, that, that would have been about right for, yeah. for what we were doing. We, we were, what I did was primarily uh, law enforcement, military, medical, and educational. And for two of those things, law enforcement and, and photojournalists, for, for law enforcement and photojournalists, digital was a little harder for them to deal with because they weren't sure. First of all, law enforcement wasn't sure how the courts were going to handle it. And the newspapers had some issues with it because of being able to manipulate images. Yeah. Though so that was that was all taken care of internally. The NPPA and those people all just come up with guidelines and they were pretty much followed. But the courts had to settle the, uh, the cases for, uh, for what would be admissible as evidence on digital images. And uh, it took a little while for that to happen. I'm sorry. Those of us who made our living shooting videotape where you could uh, turn it around in minutes mm. uh, really knew that uh, as soon as still photographers had an opportunity to do that, they would jump on it. They would jump on it. Well, for for example, down here, we uh, local newspaper, they were all good friends and they, they actually had a Jobo processor down at Riverfront Stadium where they would process the film and transmit it over the wire back to Dayton. 60 miles away. And, uh, you know, that added like three hours to their day to process the film and then send the images back to the, to the photo desk. So the minute, uh, the Nikon or the Kodak DCS 420 or whichever one it was, I, I can't remember. It was the one with the Canon mount was the first one they bought. It was only a 1.2 or 2.2 megapixel camera, but it was, it was good enough to do, to get a black and white image 
uh, and it would use the lenses they had. So they were pretty much able to go digital uh, right about that point. Uh, so it was only a matter of like 2000 to 2002 before the newspapers were, were completely converting. Uh, the commercial photographers were a different story. They took a lot, a lot, lot longer to, to go. We, we supplied a, a large department store chain that did all their own advertising pictures. And they were shooting about 2,000 sheets of 4x5 ectochrome a week and two or three cases of type 59 and 54. So there was a ton of film going out. I mean, it took them about four years to completely convert over to digital. Yeah. Uh, a, f- a friend of mine, he ran an uh, E6 Calenta processor for a studio that did the catalog work for J.C. Penny. So they were, you know, 4, 5, 8, 10, 11 by 14, Linhoffs, of that nature. But um, all that's gone bye-bye now. It's all digital. Oh, yeah. And it hurt not just the stores. It hurt the manufacturers of the film, and it hurt the labs. There were several. At one time, in the uh, from 1985 to about 2000, Dayton, Ohio has 100,000 people in it. And at one time, there were six E6 C41 labs in Dayton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. In that period of time, I mean, they were all busy. They were they were all doing uh, catalog work and and uh, wedding work. They were doing all kinds of stuff. And when digital came along, they were all there are none left. There is nowhere in Dayton, Ohio, that can process a rolled film. Wow. Oh man. And it's interesting how it was Kodak who developed the uh, the the uh, for digital photography. But they were, you know, they didn't want to ruin their film business. Oh, they don't they would take over. And look what happened. <laughs> yeah, Paul, at the, uh, the end of the 80s, I was shooting a lot of 16 millimeter motion picture film. You know, one by one, I was seeing the labs sort of disappear and fall away. And I remember that the, uh, the last roll of film that I shot, and I needed to find a place to get it developed. And there was one guy in Florida that was still shooting high school football scrimmages on 16 millimeter and the guy shooting the, the, that was like his business was to shoot scrimmages on 16 millimeter. And wow. uh, he was the last person that I could find in the state that would develop 16 millimeter black and white film. Well, a lot of those guys had their own labs. They actually had their own processor because they could, uh, they could turn it around fast. And it really wasn't that complicated to do the motion picture film. It was, it wasn't exactly dip and dunk, but it wasn't as hard as uh some of the sheet film processing it was with the nitrogen burst and all that. Yeah. But when he, when he switched over to video, that was it. Yeah. You don't <laughs> just, look back. Just the door shut back. and that was it. Yep. Now with video. So like you look at like VHS or Betamax or whatever, and obviously that's much less than what we get in with HD or 4k today. Right. So film had a certain quality that I think maybe the early days of video couldn't match. We see that with digital still photography too. You know, the, the earliest digital cameras could not match film cameras, the quality. The zap, the zap shot. And right, exactly. There was, there was like a dip, still. a dip in quality, but then yeah. it eventually rebounded. And now, you know, we could record high definition 4K video on our smartphones that destroys what VHS looked like. For, for Larry, you know, you said you shot a lot of video. Uh, was was there kind of like that period where the, the VHS or I don't know, whatever you shot, like the, the quality maybe wasn't quite as good as film could have offered, but people were still willing to pay for the convenience? Well, I started shooting three quarter inch and then went to 
beta cam and then the digital betas. Um, we were our target was television. So as long as it was good as as good as NTSC TV was, that's all we needed. That's pretty low. The film did look better, but I could come back from a news story and have videotape on the air, you know, seconds after I walked through the door. And that was more important and it was good enough. Uh, so uh, so my uh, my knowledge isn't as good. NTSC, that's what, 525 lens it, resolution? It, it stands for never the same color. <laughs> never twice <laughs> the same color. <laughs> what you got at home was sick was about uh, 480 lines. Okay. It was it was officially 525 lines, okay. but they used some of them for the uh, vertical blanking interval. And I used oh, to know this stuff, but I don't now. But, yeah. uh, well, some uh, of the international listeners, that's a NTSC was equivalent to what they may have known as PAL, P-A-L, right. uh, maybe very right. similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, PAL and CCAM were the two much higher quality formats than NTSC. If, 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 I remember my first trip to England, how shocked I was by how beautiful the picture on the TV was. But it was a lower frame rate though, right? 25 frames per second. Yeah. Yeah. But was that was the quality off? Did that offset the, the frames? It was per tremendous quality. Really? Okay. I mean, what I I, uh, the, I I always thought the English TV was was much higher grade than what uh, what we saw here back in the old days. I don't know. Yeah. UHD sets are totally different. But. No, we we when I used to watch. I mean, obviously, I was brought up on English TV, and uh, whenever I'd see the American TV, it always looked lower quality, and it always looked very red um, mm-hmm. for some reason. I don't know whether that was in you know crossover between the two, but I always felt that the the system with the six two five line system we had was superior. And um, when color TV first started, uh, I've heard this on some of the old guy engineers I worked with. The people at home here in America wanted color, damn it. And so uh, they cranked the chrome up really high early on. So uh, American TV had this hyper real soap opera look, whereas Powell always had a little bit more contrast and had and looked better for that reason. The folks, folks at home and in, in America, we bought a color TV and we're going to have every single one of those. Oh, God, we're going to get it. <laughs> yeah. well, Mike, you asked about digital still. And really what I what I was trying to say was the first was actually still video. That was the, remember the Canon zap shot that uh, it, it recorded actually still digital frames uh, on a small uh, uh, a diskette that was actually a Canon diskette size, uh, not compatible to anything else in the world. But he got a zap shot. Oh yeah. Okay. God, I haven't seen one of those. In oh wow. Have you shot with the mic? I tried. It doesn't seem to work. <laughs> I have the whole accessory kit. The battery is shot on this thing, but it came with an AC adapter, so I can plug it in and turn it on. So here, let me show you what this thing looks like. It looks about that thin. It's like a flat camcorder, kind of like this, and it uses. Let's see if I could turn this thing on. Oh, I don't have to plug. It's a bit in. like the old Minolta one ten camera. Uh, yeah, kind of. It's flat like kinda. that. The lens is on the lens on the side, though, isn't it? The lens it? is on the side. It's got a um, – it uses video floppy. So it's like a – it's smaller than a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk. Yeah, I can't eject it because I don't have – I have to plug it in. But it, it turns on. I have like five or six disks for it. When I stick the disk in, I hear the motor spin up. There's a little LED screen for like, it can hold 50 images per disk. It'll count one through 50. I can even press the shutter release and I hear it doing something. But every time I've tried to plug it into a TV, I've tried both an HD TV that still has like a composite input. And my parents still have an old tube 
cathode ray tube TV in the basement. I brought it over there and plugged it in. And no matter what I do, I just don't get a video signal out of it. So I'm holding on to this thing because it looks like it's never been used before. I have this one box, but I have a second one, which has all the accessories. Like I said, I have a bunch of discs for it. Um, I want to do a review of this simply for the historical significance of these things. I mean, it, it's pretty neat. Like it feels fairly high quality, you know, I mean, it's plastic, but like, it doesn't really creak in my hands. Um, but I would love to be able to, to shoot it, but I don't know how to get, I don't know how to get an, a video signal out of it. It must just be dead or something. It was actually pretty revolutionary for, for when it first came out. It, yeah. It just, it never really got any business applications. The, the next thing that was sort of like that was the Mavica, you know, yeah. the Sonys that use the floppy disks. Yeah, that's right. On the floppies, we, we tried to use that on a real estate photography show years ago. Oh, well, that was that was the primary uh, use was insurance adjusters and real estate. Yep, mm-hmm. there you go. So you There's guys know, one. I had no idea we'd be talking about video floppies. And <laughs> I just have this crap within arm's reach of me. <laughs> uh, I wish That's I could it. reach over. I've got uh, an original Fisher-Price Pixel Cam, which, oh, wow, yeah. which recorded video on a, a, an audio cassette. Uh-huh. And I used to like uh, videotape punk rock shows because the audio was actually pretty good on those because they had to run at a high enough rate of speed uh, to be able to put together video. Um, the video was pretty edgy, too. Yeah, I would it was imagine. pretty edgy. Yes, it was. So, Paul, there was a, I was thinking the other day that, that back in my art studio days, back around 1989, 1990, actually was in an art pro- program that had uh, sort of an inverse of the, the zap and that it was a device that would plug into a CRT for a, a computer display and record one frame of still video onto a 35 millimeter ectochrome slide. Right. Oh yeah. And yeah. Yeah. yeah it'd take like 45 minutes to film uh, yeah. Film recorder for, for video. Right. They could be used uh, for a lot of different things. The title slides were, were the big thing. Yeah, it just took forever. Oh, it was like drawing it one pixel at a time across. But there were companies the that for when they were getting when they first started doing powerpoints, they weren't really video powerpoints; they were slide projector powerpoints. So they needed to have uh, title slides made, and they could do it using uh, Kodak SO two seventy nine film, which you'd use different filters to change the colors, and it was just an I think it was either it started E4 and then it became E6. Yeah, we used to use that. Also, we used to use Codaliths. Yep, Codaliths. film where I put gels in to add, to add color. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it was that was a – talk about being in a primitive, primitive time to do that kind of stuff, but we made it work. I mean, it, yeah, it, I mean, it was certainly a niche product, though. So welcome to episode 14 of the video uh, camera <laughs> podcast. Yeah. So I, I can't we're gonna believe lo- we're going to lose some viewers on this one. Our membership's going in the toilet after this episode. <laughs> but I, 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 I can't believe I'm going to get a chance to talk about this because I want to see how many of you guys can identify what this is. I don't know if you can see it. It's hard to get it on screen. Yeah. So you can see War Games. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, oh, it's a laser did. disc. It's a Pioneer laser disc. It is not. Oh. No, no. It's, it's an RCA video disc. That is, it is RCA video disc. Sure, ah. select division. Okay. So how these things work, Anthony, is going to blow okay, your mind. Hang on. No, no, yeah, I, what, I, I remember the RCA video disc. I, I totally remember those. Oh, I, 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 I actually sold those in my store. So, so we'll have to have tons of pictures of these. But it comes in a caddy. I don't want to yeah, touch yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh-huh. got a vinyl record in there. 
Well, it's not vinyl. It's like a giant CD. Well, it's, it's, it's analog. Some, it's, it's analog. Just, yeah. It was CED, wasn't it? Yeah. Capacitance, electro something, disc something. Yeah. yeah. And it, they were they're really good because you could see the same scene over and over and over again. As it was skipping? As it was skipping, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it uses a needle, a stylus, just like a record player. It touches the surface, and the, the, the player would just spin the disc around. Um, it would hold one hour per side. So like laser disc, you know, if you have a two-hour movie, you'd have to flip it. Uh, but you have to, you, you can't ever handle the, the, the record by itself. You have to use the caddy. So you would hit eject on the player. The stylus would move out of the way. The platter would lift up inside the player, the disc. You would stick the empty caddy in until it would catch the tray. Then you would pull the whole thing out, flip the whole caddy upside down, stick it back in, and then it would extract the record, drop it back down onto the turntable and play the other side. This was all very theoretical. Yeah. That's the way it was supposed to work. <laughs> and you I know, believe each frame of video was a revolution. So the beginning, and it started in the center and went to the, went to the outside. So the first frames of video had less information in them because they were only a few inches in diameter, but yeah. the frames were the full 12 inches. So the video got better as it went. <laughs> I got Reefer Madness. Oh, you got That's all the quality movies. Space Hunter Adventures in Time with... Uh, Molly Ringwald. Have you, have you wow. actually got a player to play them on? I do. I have a player. It worked. It worked the last time I used it. But like like we see with cameras, it relies on like rubber. Like there's these rubber bands that drive the motor and they turn to like a primordial goo. So um, I don't know if it still works because I haven't tried it in probably 10 years. But I have I have a, an RCA Select Division player over here. So that would be the video equivalent of the cannon snapshot. It would. Yeah. I'm sorry. We got so far off topic there, but I had to reach and, and show that off. Was any, has anybody got any cameras they want to talk about? Yeah. What do you got? You got anything going on? Yeah, hold on. What is oh, that? Larry's got something. Oh, it's a oh, oh, All right. A Unirex. A Unirex. I'm obsessed yeah. with leaf shutter SLRs lately. It, <laughs> Oh, we got another one over here with, with David. Oh, yeah. There we I go. DKL mount yep. here. And, oh, and two retinas. Is that a... a Which retina is that, David? This is, is that a 2A? Uh, this is a 2A. 2A, yeah. I'm having a little trouble getting the, uh, the, the it to wind and to fire, so maybe you guys can give me an idea. Is it at, is that at exposure one? I can change the... Um, I can change the um, the settings for what... Ex- the, the frame, frame number, the frame no. counter. You want to, uh, if it's on one, you need to change it to 36. Yeah, I can do that. There's a button you push down on the top. And then I think a little rocker on the back that moves it. I forget that every time I use my, my retina reflex yeah, it three counts down rather than up. But, yeah, but the, one, um, but once the, it um, hits one, it locks. Yeah. It, it won't, it won't free even though I hit the button on top. But is it the exposure counters not at one? No, it's uh, 33 right now. Okay. Yeah, you've got the dreaded uh, locked shutter. The shutter's, prob- the shutter's probably cocked and partially released. Yeah. And it, it hasn't completed the cycle of firing, so the, mm-hmm. uh, the mechanism won't let you advance it again until it thinks yeah. the shutter's done firing. A service right. would probably fix that, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you tried mm-hmm. letting your cat push it off the shelf? That'll do it. <laughs> Just on the um, popcorn, Larry, is that... That's the one when they moved away from the um, into the new mount, isn't it? 
Is that the UV mount? Yeah, the UV mount. Okay. Because I've heard very mixed feelings. Let's just put it the word feelings <laughs> in uh, terms of the, the some of the comments online on those ones. You're being kind. Uh, uh, stereo realist. Here's another oldie but goodie. <laughs> those are pretty. I was just shooting mine last month. And uh, I, it's those things are like clockwork. I love those cameras. Is the realist the one where the viewfinder is on the bottom? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, Larry, does that Unirex work? Oh, yeah. Listen to this. This is the sexiest Wait, shutter you, you'll hear. Be careful. It might break. Oh, yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Oh, it's nice. I bought it at a, a Goodwill store. I got home and I could see that the uh, lens wasn't stopping down. And I said, oh, well, okay. It was a it was a good try. Then I finally gave it to myself. It was a lens and not the uh, not the camera. There's not a lot on the internet about how they work in there. So I just bought another lens on the outside chance that it worked and it worked. So uh, that led me to my other obsession later with lately, which is to have a wide normal and telephoto lens for every single camera I own, but I don't want to get into that. Uh, well, if, you, if you need lenses for that, see me, I have the 35, the 100 and the 200. Okay. Is that on your uh, eight eight store? Yeah, I actually, I don't know if they are or not because I actually spent 50 bucks on an adapter to put those lenses on my Sony. <laughs> oh, man. So, so I've been shooting with them. They're actually very good lenses. I, I had an early version of the Unirex. It was called the Wink Mirror S, and it used the UV mount. And that camera was weird because it would only fire the shutter every other frame. Like, it, oh. the mirror would get stuck. Yeah. So I would wind it again and it would cock fine. The shutter would fire and then I'd wind it, we'd get stuck. So I went through a whole roll of like bulk film because I wanted, I, you know, I know I'd be wasting film, but the images I did get from it, I agree with you, Paul, were, were really, really nice. So Topcon's um, quality of optics did continue into that series. Just unfortunately, the leaf shutters aren't the most reliable anymore. Yeah, the IC1 and the Uni both were uh, problematic cameras, but. When they worked, they worked fine, but they just didn't hold up. Yeah. This camera was so clean, I'm not sure that whoever owned it ever used it. Yeah. It's just if, if you ever find yourself with an abundance of UV lenses or anybody listening and, and you've never been able to find a Unirex body that works, Topcon did make eventually a focal plane camera that used the UV mount lenses too. I, I can't remember off the top of my head what the model was. But there is, there is at least one. One model, like enough. That's when you're through. There's a Super D model, Topcon. That's that's oh. RE. That's the RE mount. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the Exacta type mount. Mm. But uh, those lenses are really, really good. Yeah. Very good lenses. I've got the 58 1.4. Yeah, that's their classic. Gorgeous. That's, that's probably the best lens thing. they made. Yeah. I've, I've got the whole range of them, actually. I got lucky. I, I managed to. Um, I got a message from someone in Ohio, actually, of all places, uh, I think it was, where they came across um, one for sale and it was reasonably priced and they put me in contact with the store and I basically ended up with the, the 35, the 58, the 100 macro, the 58 macro as well. Sorry, the 58 telephoto, the 58 macro and um, a whole bunch of accessories as well. And I added the 135 as well onto it and it's a fantastic set i love that camera to bits yeah the topcon ic1 or ic1 auto uses the uv mount but it has a cloth focal plane shutter i didn't know that instead of the leaf shutter so if you ever 
you said you were using those lenses with an adapter. If you had a desire to shoot film, but those same lenses, and I don't, I don't, I've never actually handled an IC one before for all I know they're garbage. Oh, I've had, I've had a ton of them and none of them worked. I, so I just, no I just naturally assumed they were leaf shutter. Because no, they work. no, they're focal plane, which is weird because usually lenses have to make concessions to be leaf shutter lenses. You know, like minimum focus on leaf shutter lenses are almost way longer than focal plane lenses because of the, the geometry or something. I don't remember. So if I can come back to David's stereo realist for a second, since we've mm-hmm. got, I, I probably mentioned this on an earlier episode, but since we've got David and we've got Paul, um, Mike, you've never really done up the history of, of David White Company, have you? No, I have not. Because, you know, when I got my stereo realist, um, the story, and this was probably around 1990, uh, the story that I had heard was that the David White Company had been, in, during the war, manufacturing optics for the military, specifically like like tank sites and bomb sites, and that after the war, they switched over to make the stereo realist. Um, That's, that is true. Okay. Yeah, that is true. Uh, I, I don't know. Did I, I may have told this story, but I, I don't if I did, I'll tell it again. I'll tell it quickly. When my wife was in high school, she worked for a, a portrait wedding photographer in Centerville, Ohio. Big old burly guy named Paul Will. And he scared the hell out of her because uh, he was so gruff. Fast forward 25 years later, we're, we have a camera store in Dayton and Paul Will becomes one of our customers. He walks in. She sees him. She heads for the back room and he starts yelling for her to come back. <laughs> and uh, they became great friends. Paul Will traveled all over the country doing stereo shows for the for the stereo for David White. He was a master stereo photographer. And he gave Chris a, uh, a stereo realist with a complete mounting kit and the electric viewer. And uh, she used uh, she shot hundreds of rolls of Kodachrome. Uh, and made stereo slides from for years. She really, she really enjoyed that more than she did 35 millimeter at that point of her, of her photo career. But th- those cameras are so well made. I mean, they they feel like they could be a tank. You know, they're 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 a serious chunk of metal. And I was just always intrigued that they never came out with like other cameras. That they put all of their money into the stereo. And because as far as I know, I've Even never seen. Did do another camera and yeah, I, but they didn't make them. They were made by was it Kawa? I, I think Kawa made made their cameras. I, I I've had a couple of the uh, the, the David Whites because I always I got curious. They were made in Japan for sure. What's the that, only one they marketed made in the U.S. was the Stereo Real. What is that really rare stereo camera that was made in Milwaukee? Contura, K O N T U R A. Yeah, it's called the Contura, C-O-N-T-U-R-A. It's mostly like one huge piece of brushed or billet aluminum with what looks to be like a a saddle tan leather side to it. I I think this had something to do with David White. But um, yeah, to to answer Anthony's question, uh, the the Stereo Realist is my Argus. It's a camera that I've never once even so much as handled. Do you want mine? Do you want to try it? (laughs) Add it to the box. Okay. You know, the one Just, I actually like better is the Kodak, uh, the brown Bakelite camera with the uh, uh, bubble level on it. And they're just really cool cameras. And you'll see them. I mean, they're they're $49 cameras, but they're really, really cool. That's there the Contura. Contura. 
Yeah. Have you ever seen one of those? Nope. Never seen one of those. Yeah. It was made in Milwaukee. Uh, So it's American made camera. I think only 200 or so were ever made. Uh, My guess would be, you know, they were a little bit too ambitious uh, from the looks of it, but a very, very pretty camera. And as you can see, it's got the viewfinder on the bottom. I don't know if you can see it. Just like the, just like the stereo realist. We will include a picture of this in the show notes, of course. Does anyone know what the uh, Viewmasters were shot with? Uh, there was a Viewmaster camera, right? That you used to make your. In fact, you could buy the reels and make your own Viewmaster slides. <laughs> they were sort of a pain in the butt to try to load them, but yeah, there you go. There's one. Yeah, they use regular 35 millimeter film. There's two primary versions of this camera. This is the first one. The film loads um, horizontally, so you can see a normal 35 millimeter film compartment with a. The supply spool goes on one side, the take cups over here, it goes across. And right here by my finger is one of the lenses for the left side. And then this one is for the right side. And when you turn a knob in the middle of the front of the camera, see how it moves up to the top. So uh, this is one 35 millimeter camera where when you load in a fresh roll of film, you start at the beginning, you, you take all your pictures on the top half of the film, you go all the way to the end. When you reach the end of the film, you turn that knob, it moves the lens to the bottom half, and then it reverses the film transport. Oh so my you, gosh. you keep winding the camera and now you're exposing, kind of, think of it like a four track audio cassette. Uh-huh. You know, you're, you're doing half of the, the tape on one half, in this case film, but then you're flipping it down to the bottom half and then you're in essence rewinding it as you're continuing to shoot. So yeah, exactly. So once you complete completely reach the end of side B, you're actually at the beginning of the roll of film and you don't need to rewind it. Uh, But then very, it's a very pretty art deco camera as well. Yeah, it's art yeah. deco, but it was made in the fifties. Like you would, you would think that this was a nineteen thirties camera because it's got that kind of like Kodak Bantam special pinstripes on the body. Uh-huh. You know, it's got horizontal like uh, bare metal on a black paint body. Uh, but these are all made in the fifties. Um, in the sixties, they made a version two of this camera. It, it works kind of the same way, but the film actually transports diagonally through the camera. Uh, they did that somehow because they were able to squeeze the frames a little bit closer together. So you could actually get a few more exposures on, on the same length of film somehow by going diagonally. But I've, I've never actually handled one of those to see how they work. That's how through quarter inch video worked. Oh, is it really? It went diagonal? That's that's how VHS worked as well. The the recording head was canted so that the the helix would spin that the drum would spin. Yeah, we're back on video. Back on video. <laughs> There's another version of the uh, of, of the uh, another stereo camera very similar to that called a Vidion. Heard that, of that uh, one? It was a Bakelite and a black pla- black Bakelite. Really a cool looking camera too. Yeah, I shot the Viewmaster. I have a review for it on my site. Um, the way it was supposed to work is you would use slide film. You would develop the film as normal. You would get it back a strip of you know uncut film with all these tiny little a positive images on it. Uh, and then you would use a special hole punch and you would punch out in- each individual little tiny picture. And like Paul was saying, you would buy blank Viewmaster reels and you would just put them in there yourself. And then um, you would use those, you know, back then they were probably higher quality, but like when I was a kid, they were like the red one with the little button on the side. And you could look at pictures of yeah, Disneyland. No, they, they, were, they were very good for home use. Yeah. I, I up until just well, the last year or so I had, I had reels and blank reels. Oh, Wow. You know, you get in a, a box of 10. Yeah. Uh, they were a nightmare to try to mount them. They sound like a pain they, in the butt. Well, the film was so small and you yeah. had to you know, stagger the, the way that you put them in. I mean, it was the uh, size of like your pinky nail. 
mm-hmm. the nail on your finger, your pinky finger, that's about the size of each image. Uh, you could like, I did it with negative film and then I just scanned it on my scanner and then just flipped it around on the computer just to get an idea of the resolution. And it's, it's very small. Well, the interesting thing, if you go on eBay and search stereo images, well, actually don't do that unless you're over 21 because it, uh, it yep. seems to be, most of them seem to be for adult use only. Yeah. I got porn. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> it seems to be a large market for stereo, uh, nudie cuties or, you know, burlesque type stuff. But I mean, that went back, that went back to the 1900s. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. if you go back and look at the old stereo cards, uh-huh. lots know, of naked people. Chunk of those were, were Did that make it three double D. <laughs> you know um like we all you know we we we're fans of expired film emulsion so sometimes i like to trawl ebay for you know some pan x or something uh but i've discovered that if you just go to the regular film area of, of ebay you get film but then there's a second section called vintage film which you would think okay that's where i would go for expired film but nope that's porn <laughs> 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 it's like half Swedish erotica on like eight millimeter reels and stuff like that. See guys, this is why we need guests to steer these conversations. <laughs> so miles after the, uh, the Nikon show, did you all go out and spend the rent? Uh, I, I, I honored uh, our West by, by buying a contacts actually. In the meantime, nice. did you get a 10 X? No, I got a three a actually from a okay. fellow there. Uh, I, I love my three. I, I shoot my, it's one of the, the cameras that goes into regular rotation for me. Uh, I've, I've got a two a and a three a, and uh, I just, you actually prefer that to my M three. So, which, which lenses do you have on it? Uh, I don't have a lens for it yet. I, I can adapt my, my 50 mil Nikon rangefinder lenses mm-hmm. with, you know, a little bit of. It's close enough. You know, close it'll, enough. It'll work fine. Uh, uh, but I want to get one of the biogons. I want to get either the 21 biogon or the 35 biogon. And I, save your money yeah the 21 is uh because you want to get it with the viewfinder too so you got to make sure you get them together um i on occasion you'll see the biogon by itself without the viewfinder and i guess you could approximate it with a 28 millimeter viewfinder or something but you really want the complete set i've got the zeiss 515 and the 52 and in all honesty i like my russian lens that came with my uh uh, Kiev four as much as the two Zeiss for that, for the contacts. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, when in doubt, don't be afraid to look at those Russian 51 fives. Uh, they're exceptionally close to the original Zeiss. Are there mm-hmm. like uh, year ranges you want to watch out for when buying the, the Soviet ones or are they all kind of similar quality and, and coding? Uh, the Zeiss lenses? No, the, the Russian ones. The Russian oh, the ones. Russians. Oh. If you get ones made in the 50s, there's a very high chance that it actually is ice because they, they basically took over. They, they moved all the blanks over. So for quite a while, the uh, Jupiters and yeah. uh, you know most of the, the contacts Kiev lenses were either made from Zeiss blanks or even new old stock that they just slapped their name on. Uh, by like the 60s, um, I think it was, you know, obviously the, those original supplies would run out um, and they would make their own stuff. And I think the quality was still generally high, but it seems, and this is completely unsight- unscientific, but by, by like the 70s and 80s, quality control took a nosedive. There was the common belief that in the 70s, early 80s, if you bought a Kiev, 
you'd buy it from the store and immediately take it to a repair shop so that you could actually use it. I mean, I, I can't say like 1967 is the cutoff or anything like that, but the earlier, the better typically with Soviet stuff. Uh, I have a Kiev two, which is one of the earlier, I think mine's a 1953. And uh, I ha- I've shot a couple genuine contacts too. And, and I think the Kiev two is even smoother. It's, it's, mm. it's really, really, the tolerances are excellent on them. So um, you, if you get an early one, I mean, like with anything, quality is everything, you know, Soviet lenses can have fungus too, you know, they can have scratches too, but, but as a general rule, the earlier, the better. Do any of the 35 biogons mount on the 3A? Because I know, are there some compatibility issues? With no, the... it should fit. should fit fine. Uh, yeah. Same mount. Yeah, same mount. It's just, you know, they had the internal mount and the external right. mount. Yeah, I've got the Russian 35 and it doesn't mount on the 3A. Really? Right, the Jupiter 12 won't yeah, mount on a 3A. It does not mount on the 3A. No. M- mounts on the 4 perfectly fine. On the, Ju- on the Kiev 4, perfectly fine. But It mounts mount. on a 2. Does it bottom out or is it something with uh, the bayonet? It's uh, the rear uh, element projects too far in. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, slightly it's- different topic. I've got a question for everybody here. I've just ordered a Canon VT Deluxe, which hasn't arrived yet. Very interesting looking camera. It's got the fast advanced lever at the bottom. I've never used a camera like that. Is that more reliable, you know, faster? Or is it, does it actually work? How does it actually work? Maybe Mike, you can talk us through that. So I'm holding a Canon VT Deluxe. It looks like a typical Canon rangefinder, but the bottom is about a centimeter thick. Okay. Uh, Looking at the bottom, you see the tripod mount on one side and then along the middle is a lever, which folds out. When it folds out, it sticks straight down and it's meant to be used with your left hand. So you would, with your right hand, it's, I know it's backwards for the people on video and, and people listening can't see this at all, but you use your left hand and you go like that, fire shutter, fire shutter, fire shutter, fire oh, shutter. The whole thing comes across. The whole thing comes across. Yeah. So if the problem though, is that the action of doing this does move the camera. So it, you would really need very, very steady hands to do so, it but so in theory it's, it, it's basically a horizontal vitessa yeah i mean i I'm, <laughs> I, I can't guess but i'm probably firing at about two frames per second here so in theory you could just fire off is that the only way to advance the film or yeah that's it there's no, no there's lever no, at all on top no so if this thing jams the whole camera's jammed like i had the like of it which fit on the they had two different ones they had one for the barnack cameras and one for the m's and they were a chain drive, uh, and it was you could add it on to a regular Leica. So if you did jam it up, which was very common, it was a chain drive, and the chains broke pretty regularly. You could uh, take that off, put your old base back on, and still have a camera that worked. Rico had what was it, Mike? The three hundred and five hundred both had the five hundred, the five one nine, and then the final model was the five one nine M. Uh, I have one of those, but it's actually upstairs, but it worked similar though. Canon's version. And I think the like of it travels in a very straight line, like very straight. Whereas the Rico version has kind of a curve to it. It it kind of folds. I I can't really describe it because I don't have it in my hand, but it's a very, very similar motion. You use your left hand to advance the film. The Canonet 19 had the same thing too. Uh, and so did the original Canon Flex. So uh, Canon used this same film advance on more than just the VT Deluxe. And 
I think it was you or somebody had asked recently how reliable like it was at long term. And uh, I've never seen one not work, but I, I mean, my sample size is pretty small though. So I'm sure they can break, but probably not any more, you know, likely than a wind lever might too, but it's, it's, it's quite comfortable. I do really, really like this camera. Um, this particular one though, has that issue with the shutters where one of them moves faster than the other. So all of my images are darker on one side than the other. So I have to decide whether I like it enough to send it out maybe to Eugenie or somebody because it, it needs some shutter work. And, you know, if, if it's like just a matter of slow speeds, not working, I'll usually just use the fast speeds. But when every image you're shooting is dark on one side and light on the other, that kind of kills any, yeah. any use for it. Mark Faulkner Mark just joined Faulkner us. Has joined us. Yeah. Hey, Mark. Hey. So we've, we've rebranded the podcast. We only talk about video now, VHS, Betamax. Perfect. Uh, Canon, Canon zap shots. Uh, oh, real to real. Real to real. Yeah, we're going to get into test cam pretty soon here. <laughs> Listen, thanks, Mike, but it's uh, time for me to go, okay? Thanks, okay, everyone. Malcolm, thank hey, you. Malcolm, thanks Bye. for stopping thanks in. Thanks for joining Bye. our first ever European call. Yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> have, a good, have a good night. You too. All right, Mark, if you just talk with a, a British accent, we should be good for the rest of the episode. <laughs> right <Righto. laughs> so, Since we're talking about Canons, um, I actually had a, a, can, a camera gifted to me by a reader of my site, Christopher Engler. Um, he said, do you want a Canon dial? And I'd already shot one before, but he's, it, was, it was Anthony's, and I sent it back to him. He said he's got a kit. He didn't explain what he meant by kit. Uh, yeah, so 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 Mark's holding one up. So I get this box, this big Bell and Howell dial box, big cardboard box, and I open this thing up, and it's got all the styrofoam padding. It literally says Dial Thirty Five Kit. All the original manuals are still in its original envelope, never opened, and I mean the, it's never been used before. Oh, yeah, the, the camera's still in the bag. Wow. It still has a roll of Coda Color X still in the box. Expiration date, February 74. It's got one flash cube, uh, this thing called the Can- Bell & Howell flash cube adapter. So it, it goes into the hot shoe, and then you just mount the flash cubes into it. It's got the hard case. Have, have I- you wound it up to see if it fires? Well, it needs film in it, right? Don't, don't over. Just yeah. be careful you don't overwind. Yeah. My, mine works every, you know, 25th month of the year so yeah, i don't have mine i don't bit, have mine's a bit like that too because it's been overwound and needs someone to look at it i actually have a tester roll of film here uh so i'll actually load it up and see because it, it kind of needs the tension from the film to let's see here all right got some film in there wind it up a little bit and push the button yeah it's firing it's a miracle yeah it even has a little plastic tab that covers cool. up the flash hot Dude, shoe. Just, just, just what jump a, back to the bit where you put the film in. It actually needs the film in to fire. Because it's a motor wind. So when you don't have film, it, most water, motor wind cameras are that way. When you wind it up, if you don't have film in it, the take-up spool will just spin as you're winding. But it needs the tension from the film to actually stop the take-up spool from spinning, oh, allowing to go you back to and look at mine then. 
most motor wine cameras, Ricoh made a bunch of them. They, requ- they, they do need film. The Kodak Motormatic is the same way. They, they won't work properly unless film is actually in the camera because the film acts as part of the transport system. So, I wish so, you hadn't told me that. I don't know how many of those things I've thrown away because they didn't work. Yeah. You, you can, you can fake <laughs> oh, it. No. It's, it's like the Vito B, the, the Voigtlanders, that, that you can't get the shutter to actuate unless you've moved the, uh, yeah. the ratchets. The, con- yeah. uh, the Contessa 35, the Zeiss Icon, Contessa. You could fake it by opening the film compartment with your thumb spinning the serrated gear while cocking it will we'll catch we'll make it catch but yeah pretty much any camera from that era that has the clockwork wind up film advance needs to have film in it otherwise you'll never be able to test the shutter so if chris if you're listening thank you uh your your very vague description of a canon dial kit definitely undersold it uh but i, I think it's super cool to kind of get this kind of provenance you know i mean i'm not I, I try not to call myself a collector because this extra stuff, it's like, I don't know what to do with it. I don't have the room for sometimes this extra neat stuff, but it is kind of cool to see uh, you, how you this. You just have to give in, Mike. Come on. Yeah. You just have to give in and call yourself well, a collector. I, I like a box for it. <laughs> yeah, I do have the box. That's true. You know, I but think it's you... all right. We'll, we, will, we will just all call Mike a collector. He doesn't need to do it. We can do it for yeah. him. <laughs> you know, Mike Eckman, he's a real collector. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, he's got a manual that hasn't even been opened. Yeah, yeah. You know I, mean? it's, it's still... I, think we, I think we've all got manuals that haven't yeah. been opened. I mean, I'd love to open it just to kind of see it, but part it's like Pandora's manual, you know, maybe. You probably you know, have the world's only surviving Magic Cube adapter. Yeah. yeah. I've got a Magic Cube adapter for my, for my Minox uh, C, and I've always wanted to use a Magic Cube with, a, with, with the Minox C. Oh, we'll go okay, for so it, I'm right? going to tell you the nerdiest story you guys are going to hear. When I was in high school, our uh, band performed a uh, marching formation. We made a diamond and about half of us had magic cubes with uh, pencils and we would fire the magic cube with the pencil to make the diamond on the field sparkle. (laughs) Wow. How do you how do you discharge it with a pencil? The magic cube works with it. like by friction, not by electricity. Yeah, the so, flash cubes used uh, had to be shorted, had to be uh, electrical short. There was some that had a striker plate. Yeah, it's just like magnesium plate. or something in there. So you, oh. you still remember still in the in the right place and in uh, the magic cube flashes. All four sides, or did you, did you get like one four shots per cube? You got four f- per cube. Yeah, that's neat. And I do claim nerd of the year <laughs> that's a pretty cool concept it's a cool thing for, to have to do well the guys in the uh, uh yearbook staff wouldn't loan us their electronic flashes so we had to do something do you remember the little let's talk about flashes do you remember the little micro flashes that were battery powered that had slaves built into them they were very popular back in oh 95 to 2000 they were little uh, ran on two double a batteries they're very small, maybe three by three inches and a half inch thick. It's about the same thickness as a AAA battery. Well, they they and I had a slave belt in, so you could put the you could put the flash anywhere you wanted to put it, and any other flash would trip it. So you had all these wedding guys who would put the flash in the bride's bouquet, no. uh, and when he took a picture, it would just light up that. It had uh, commercial photographers putting them in ovens. Uh, wow. So they were shooting a, 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 you know, a stove or a refrigerator or something. They could just add a couple of those in it and pop it up. 
they were we just would, really cool little things. We'd and, use them uh, underwater in caves to, to light up caves. Yeah, they were great for that because you could put them anywhere. You could, you, and they were dirt cheap. They were like at that time less than ten dollars a piece. Dealer cost on it was probably three. So you could buy as many of them as you wanted and just lay them around places, and it could light up a whole area with them. They could be seen. They were powerful enough to compete with the uh, 285 you had on the camera. No, they weren't that much. They were the guide number was really low on them. I mean, it would only shoot like three feet or something, mm-hmm. but just to light a particular uh, uh, small area. Yeah, or, a kicker, or, or as a kicker light, they were great for that. Now I got to have one. Sorry. <laughs> Being from Tennessee, I had. Do you guys remember Paul Buff? Sure. Flashes? Paul Lightnings. Yeah. What well, you know? Uh, we I had the coffee can. Uh, studio flashes that were the size and shape of a coffee can and they use a hundred watt incandescent bulb as a um, modeling light and you had to have the bulb in the uh, in the flash because it also was the diffuser for the flash and I saw oh, okay. and you could even meter off the hundred watt bulb by uh, setting your light meter for 16 seconds and it gave you the same f-stop that the uh, that the flash would give you but I didn't have a flash and I didn't have a meter that would go to 16 seconds. Yeah. Paul Buff made those things in his garage when he first got started. Paul Buff worked for Frank Zappa. He oh, was, uh, he was Zappa's uh, sound guy and uh, electronics wizard uh, for a lot of the early mothers and invention albums. Oh, I did not know that the camera store owner, uh, our, our local camera store in here in Maryville, Tennessee, he drove to Paul's house to pick up uh, flashes that he sold in the store. Where are you? Maryville, Tennessee, which is near Knoxville okay. in the Smoky Mountains. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just north of you, uh, oh. southwest Ohio. Oh, okay. We get a lot of Ohioans here during the spring. <laughs> oh, yeah, and in the fall. Yeah. We're, we're, a, we're a lot of leaf peepers up here, so hey, you're the closest place for us. I actually was in a thrift shop the other day, and was speaking of flashes and so on, and, and this is actually quite an interesting one. Paul picked this up for like $5 and didn't think much of it. I thought, okay, it's another Nikon flash, the, the SB20. That's and, a nice flash. Um, yeah, what's interesting is it's got built-in diffusers, but different types, and you just spin them around, which I, I oh, had never it. seen before. And so how did I did not know this one? Because that is actually really, really handy. Um, I would not have actually... Th- Thought of that because I've, I've, you know, I used to have the SB28 and all those professional 28 ones. 28 and 25 was a popular one too. Yeah, but I'd never seen this one before. But I mean, it's got a, a, a full set of controls at the back as well. So it's actually, you know, nice little find for five bucks and seems to work quite well. So is yeah, that a good pickup? What brand is it? Is it an Osram? No, Nikon. It's a really mm. okay. Is an SB24, SB20? SB18. It's just SP20. The 20, SP20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So no, those, were, those were made for the uh, FE. Right. Okay. I hadn't paired it up yet. So that's handy to know. So. Yeah. Does it have two pins on the bottom? Uh, you mean down there? It's got four. Four pins. Okay. So one of them is going to be to set the ready light. One of them will be, okay. One of them is a lock pin. One of them doesn't do anything except go in and out when you screw down the, uh, the, the, the wheel there around the, on the base. So right. three of them, three of them are active, and one of them is a lock. And they're really you got to be very careful with those because sometimes if you screw them down too much, the lock will not release when you want to take it off. So then you've got the pin stuck down inside the shoe of the camera, and it won't come back up. Right. Okay. 
isn't it well, true that some older flashes, even though they're hot shoe flashes, if you mount them to a modern camera, they can like fry the electronics or something? Yeah, the trigger voltage on uh, like a, a 280, some of the METS uh, shoe mount flashes and even 285 HVs, they were the worst because they the trigger voltage on those flashes was more than a modern digital camera can handle. And uh, they made, uh, Ween made something called a safe sink that um, you could put on the shoe of the camera. Like a relay? Yeah, it's a relay and it it stepped, it protected the voltage. It was like a little circuit breaker. Yeah, I don't do much with flashes. Uh, In fact, Anthony, you literally just tried your first hand at flash, right, on uh, the FM2? Oh, it's it's actually, I think it's a um, a Nikon SB12. Um, Oh, can I get this where it shows? Looks like that. It's ridiculous because it came with this FM2, with this black FM2, and it's like bigger than the FM2. It's yeah, a sixteen. I, I think it might be a sixteen. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but it's a huge flash. It's a massive flash on my tiny little FM2. Uh, I was afraid it was just going to like always tip over backwards when I when I put it down. Uh, but I got great results with it. You know, yeah. I, like for somebody like I've I've never been a flash shooter. Uh, and you know, I've probably had that flash sitting around for a year and a half before I decided to put some batteries in it to see if it even worked. Um, works perfectly fine with the FM too. Uh, but I just, it's never been something that's appealed to me. I've always been a natural light shooter. It's funny because I'm kind of the same way. Like I just, I don't really have time to mess with flash too often because I'm usually shooting outdoors, but earlier this year, Back in like June or so, I uh, I wanted to try some flash photography. So I thought, all right, I'll use a, a relatively newer film camera. So I took out um, a, one of my Minolta, I think it was a 650 SI, one of the, the Dynax cameras. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to mount a flash of this thing until I actually looked at the hot shoe. Uh-huh. And it's not the same as anybody else's. And it was like shoe. foiled again. It's like the inverse of a hot shoe. Like you could literally take a Nikon and connect it to the hot shoe of a Minolta and they'd be like somehow linked together. That, that I mean, obviously that was something Minolta did so that you had to use their flashes. Yeah, but they did make an adapter. Oh, they did. Okay. Yeah, that you, you could uh, you could move it on. So if you're here's my um is my contribution a Nikon SBE SBE and flash for the EM. There you oh, go. Yeah. Yep. Here we go. Oh, trying to focus. Yeah, David and has that have, auto auto blur background messes up when you hold things. It has the um uh, manual or I use it on my Fuji X Pro two with a hot shoe adapter. Otherwise, it'd be mounted on the camera. It might burn out the the camera controls. Yeah. You know, it was a different time then. The Nikon AM was marketed as a camera for ladies. And uh, I bought my girlfriend one with SB, and uh, it must have worked because she's now my wife. Uh, <laughs> yeah, same thing. I, that was my wife's engagement present. Mm-hmm. AM 35 and the 75, the 150. <laughs> one feature I do really like about the EM that I thought was clever was their implementation of the backlight compensation. There's a little blue button on the front that when you press and hold it, it'll only momentarily give you two extra stops of exposure, but it'll, it'll, it'll go back to zero once you release the button. And, you know, I mean, granted, that's sort of a meant like, you know, they, they called it cameras for ladies, like as if women didn't know how to use a right. camera, but uh, that was a sign of the times. Uh, but I, I think that's actually kind of nice because, you know, usually when you need backlight compensation, you only need it for one, maybe two pictures. Mm. You're almost always going to go back. And when you use a dial, it's just one more thing they have to remember. So I did what? actually kind of appreciate that little blue button. 
And I hate that it's actually one more thing to remember to turn off. Right. It's actually one more thing to remember to turn off, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it, it, it'll just, it, when you release your finger off the button, it goes back to zero. So you don't really have to worry about it. But I hate um, that the button is blue plastic. It looks like, uh, it looks cheap on a Nikon. <laughs> yeah. People they, freak. They changed that blue button to a silver button, didn't they, at one point? Yeah. I think there are different yeah. versions. Most yeah, of them you see it. are blue, but I, I think you're right. They did change Later them. on, they, they turned it to a silver button. And then the model that replaced it was the FG, which it's still a kind of entry level camera, but it, it's a pretty good camera. I mean, it, it's got a full range of speeds. You know, it still fires its shutter. Uh, with no battery at a single speed, uh, accepts, you know, Nikon's whole range of lenses for the era. Is that an FG? No, uh, EM. In the EM, okay. Does it have the blue button? So it's the silver button there. Silver button, okay. okay. So that's, a, yeah. that's a later one. Yeah, yeah the, the FG, you know, the, the biggest problem with FGs were people didn't read the manual. And so they put a roll of film in the camera and the camera doesn't work. It's, it's only firing at the, the meter isn't moving. And uh, they didn't realize that the frame counter has to be at one uh, in order to get the, uh, the, the, sh- the, the meter to work at all. Isn't the F3 the same way? F3 is the same. So is the FA. Yeah. Almost all modern mm-hmm. film cameras. Nikon did that in order to be able to load the camera with the lens cap on. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think the reason I have my F3 is because the guy who had it and didn't think it worked. Didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Very common. Very so common. if you want to, you could Sunny 16 with a 190th shutter speed for the, if you want to try and get an extra shot before frame zero, but otherwise, <laughs> right, the meter uh, wouldn't work. Yeah, well, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of spacing in there, so I think you'd probably wind up with a lot of well-exposed half frames. <laughs> so, Paul, you, you were right. Mine was a, uh, it's a Speedlight uh, SB16. Well, see, they made two six SB16s, an A and a B. And, and one of them is for the F3. It had the okay. F3 shoe on it. The one you have, I think, is an SB16A. Those modules come off on the bottom. Okay, yep, yep. So you take it off and you put on the uh, the other module and it fits an F3. But it's just it's ridiculous because you know, if I hold it up side by side with the, uh, the FM2, it's considerably bigger than the camera is. You didn't have red eye with it. I mean, it was it's sat up high enough that you never had red eye with people. The bigger the, uh, the, bigger the diffuser, the better. Yeah, yep. A camera barn had the greatest selection of accessories of any of the New York camera store. Olden, uh, none yep. of those guys had accessories like camera barn had. That's cool. You could, you could rummage through the bins in the day. Yep. Camera oh. Barney was, uh, <laughs> was what everybody always called uh, the guy that mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember who, what his name, Willoughby Peerless, Olden, or yep. Willoughby Peerless, Willoughby, yeah. Olden and, uh, and Camera Barn were the big stores. In the How area. long did Camera Barn make it? Like when, I mean, they're not still around, right? Uh, no. Um, yeah, trying to, trying to remember. I would say 90s. 90s, uh, okay. They shut down before it got worse. <laughs> yeah. The, well, there's um, the Camera Barn chain and they emerged. There used to be a, a retailer called Mario Hirsch, Hirsch Photo. Oh, yeah. And he... He went out, you know, and the Caramont's chain moved into the uh, 44th and 3rd Avenue store up the block from the U.N. Wow, I didn't know that. Mario Hirsch had a good store. But originally, originally he was on 9th Avenue near the Port Authority on the west side of Manhattan. Then he moved to the east side. Was For, for Paul Org, David, I guess, um, was there ever a camera that you sold back then that just did not sell, like it wasn't popular, but it's like really, really popular today. You know, like people go crazy over the Yashica T, the, you know, the, the Zeiss 
cameras, like something like that? Is there something that is really hot today that you're like, man, in my day, this thing was garbage? No, I can't no, remember. <laughs> really, uh, you know, camera stores were funny because they they needed to make profits. And there were certain lines that allowed them to make profits. And it wasn't necessarily the, the big name cameras. Camera stores loved Rico. They loved Mamiya, especially when Bell and Hell had the Mamiya ZE camera, that, which was a really, when they worked, they were great cameras, but they did they had a tendency to fall apart. So camera stores, they loved Chenon. They loved Rico. But they you, you couldn't make money. Yeah, there you go. ZEX. I mean, mm-hmm. ZE2, ZEZMs. The only thing you didn't want to do when you pull up the uh, rewind lever to open the back, don't pull it up too hard because a lot Plastic. of times it comes off in your hand. Yeah. Nikon's, Nikon, Canon, uh, the big manufacturers never allowed camera stores to make much money. I gotcha. You, like Apple. You sold a, if you sold a $400 camera, you were paying probably $400 for it. I gotcha. And you'll get 6% terms so that you made $24 there. Then they would give you something they would call key city money, which was basically supposed to be for advertising use. But yes. It, it wasn't really. It was just money to, that you could put in your pocket if you wanted to. Yeah, we would use the uh, so some of that money. They would use it for, for the camera bag or the uh, the bags that we use to take your merchandise out of the store. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Did you make more money selling cameras or film or camera no, bags? The only thing you made money on were accessories. Accessories. You can yep. make a lot of money on filters, uh, camera bags. Uh, if you sold a $10 filter, your cost was a dollar. Yeah. I, th- I think that's been true of like the electronics industry forever. You know, even still yeah. today, I worked, uh, I had a part-time job working for Best Buy from 2006 to 2011. And someone would come in and buy a TV and, you know, maybe you'd make, you know, $20, $30 profit on that, but you, you get them to buy a surge protector and you've, you've doubled your profit on that surge protector rather than the TV itself or, you know, printer cables or ink or stuff like that. So well, in the photo industry, extended warranties were also very profitable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Manufacturers generally gave the extended warranties to the, to the, to the stores. Nikon, uh, they would give us an additional four year warranty. Mm-hmm. So you have a total of five years and they expected you to sell that warranty for a hundred dollars or whatever. And we didn't do it. We, we always gave the warranty with the camera. And, and just uh, used it to build up goodwill among the, the customer base. And then in the day, there was uh, there was unofficial imports. There was a gray market. Gray market, yeah. You know, a lot of cannons came in the, the AE-1s at that time. Well, Nikon refused to repair. Uh, That's right. They didn't import. I mean, they were the first that said, if you we didn't import it, we're not going to fix it. And, uh, and they could tell by the serial number uh, and the model. Yeah, the models were different, of course. That's right. They came in a plain white box. Was I in trouble? Uh, no, not necessarily, because sometimes they were refurbs. Okay. Nikon would sell dealers a refurbished product, and a refurbished product is either a camera that had an initial defect, uh, which the Nikon would allow the, the dealer to replace to the customer, or it was one that they had tried to repair three times and not been successful. So you never knew when you bought a refurb for whether you were getting a brand new product or whether you were getting one that had been repaired a couple of times and they were having ongoing problems with. We, we used to um, enjoy the American uh, gray market a lot from Australia because what would happen is we'd be able to get the cameras very cheap, um, avoid all the taxes, get it set out. Uh-huh. And then if you went back to Nikon and said, oh, we needed to, 
need to get that fixed. And they say, well, where did you buy it? You say, I bought it on my travels. They'd make an exception because you bought it on your travels and we're such a small market here. Um, so we actually, I think from Australia, we actually enjoyed the American grey market more than the, the Americans did. And you bought it on your travel into town. That's cool. uh, yeah. Theo, I did want to mention, I don't know if you're a, if you're a left-eye dominant shooter, that Canon VT will be pretty nice because then you can advance the film without kind of moving the camera forward. And Yeah, that's true because I'm left-eye right. also. Okay. Oh, that's an interesting well, I'm not, but I'll have to try it now. <laughs> have you, Theo, have you ever shot a Canon rangefinder with the rotating prism? I have not shot a Canon okay. rangefinder so, full stop. So I have just a 50 millimeter Serenar on mine. And I have a 50 millimeter viewfinder. So, right, like it, it, it has its own 50 millimeter viewfinder in it. But I actually prefer the auxiliary viewfinders just because they're larger. But if you do that, there's a position on the top dial that allows you to choose 50, 35, and RF. Right. When, you, when you move it to the RF position and then look through the camera's main viewfinder, the whole thing is basically the rangefinder. So it it oh, make it almost like magnifies. It's it's really meant for telephoto, but it actually magnifies the rangefinder so that if you're trying when you're using the rangefinder to focus, the whole image is is highly magnified, making it really easy. And then I just use because my vision is so terrible. Sometimes looking through the tiny windows for the actual composition is difficult. So I like to shoot this camera with a fifty millimeter lens on it, fifty millimeter viewfinder on the shoe, and then set the viewfinder to that RF position for for focus assist. Oh, yeah, hey, Mark's, no. Mark's got one too. Uh, All right, highly so, underrated cameras, even yeah. today. So David's showing a, us. Here's a 20 UD Nikkor. That's a big front hand. Front 72 element. millimeter. And here is the uh, the coupling pin. Yep. And they do, as I say, and they have the bar. So it would, it would work for AI. Anthony actually had to drop off, but he was just looking at a Nikkor uh, 85 1.8, which oh, o- o- the original version. It. Yeah, that, that lens only came non-AI. Uh, so to find one that's mm-hmm. AI, it has to have some kind of conversion. And mm-hmm. as long, and if, if anybody's ever looking to buy one, as long as it's a factory conversion, it's fine. Uh, some people though would take non-AI lenses and get like a hacksaw or a Dremel or whatever the 1960s equivalent of a Dremel mm-hmm. was, and they would grind away the metal to mimic it. And it technically works, but it's very, very crude and sloppy. I could call it. And, uh, and my 65 F body. That's nice. Nice. I like the ones with the original Nippon Kaku logo, yep. similar this to the SP. Stranger lenses I've got. It's an exact, exact amount. Gun? Yeah, the Cisco uh, Guttingen. It's the F4 24 millimeter. Wow. I've got it adapted to my uh, Fuji X mount. Oh, wow. I've read some kind of interesting images with that one. Well, did you, you said F4, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Is that a retro focus design lens? No, it's a, I think it's a standard. Let me pop off the back here. I, I think it would be. Does does the rear element protrude out beyond the original yeah. mount? Uh, I mean, it, it won't it won't go past your adapter, but if you know. it does, it's very okay. minimal. It's right at the it's right at the edge there. Yeah, it's probably retrofocus. Okay. Well, guys, um, as every week occurs, we have to cut this uh, to the end. Now, I don't want to say short because that's not the right word to use. Um, Theo, you want to real quick give the listeners an update on our uh, Camerosity Facebook page? Yes, um, as, as people might know, um, but definitely look it up. We've got a Camerosity podcast Facebook page, but we've also got a Camerosity 
uh, podcast group now. So please come and join our group. You'll, you'll lots of discussion. We can we've got it all linking through our Instagram as well. So you'll start to see all the photos coming through yeah. and uh, and have lots of discussion um, that can continue beyond the actual podcast itself. Yeah, when when we started doing this, you know, there's no manual for how to do podcasts, so we kind of tried a bunch of different things. But the uh, the group seems to be the the best way to engage with listeners to to follow up on questions from the show, share the photos. Uh, we're we're getting a lot of people joining and some positive comments there. Plus, that's where we're going to do our show announcements. And in regard to that, uh, Theo, Anthony, Paul, and I are having a, a great time doing these podcasts. It's been a ton of fun for all of us. Uh, the feedback we talked about at the beginning of the show has been really, really great, too. Uh, we want to keep it up, but we think the best way to do that is to do an episode every other week, um, simply just to avoid you know, burnout, because we don't want to oversaturate too much with with camerosity uh we want to keep the discussions fresh so next week we'll be off uh which means that our next show we will record on december 13th same time as we always do and then get the episode out later that week and uh this isn't positive yet we're still toying with this idea but uh we really do want to get a show where we can get some more of our european callers to join in uh it's pretty ironic that we had (laughs) <laughs> we had somebody join today, uh, but we're, we're tentatively looking for uh, the 27th doing an episode at a different time, coordinating all the different time zones with Theo in, in, in Europe and uh, where, where me, Paul and Anthony are. Uh, we're we're going to have to decide on a time to do that. If we don't end up doing it that week, we will eventually do it, you know, maybe once every other month or something, have a European time slot so that we could try and get uh, as many people as possible to join. But wanted to say thank you. Uh, we did lose Paul and we did lose Anthony. Um, but Miles, it's always great to have you on the show. You asked some great questions last week. So you obviously had fun uh, and came back. Uh, Larry, you know, thank you for joining. Uh, I, a- after the show started, I, I realized you were the same person that sa- shot me a quick $5 donation on the site. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, every single penny I get goes either into the site or this podcast for hosting or something. David, you know, I, I, I love hearing stories of people who've worked in the industry before, whether at stores or in some sales or professional shooting. Cause um, I, I got an email today, literally today from a guy asking if I had updated contact information for Larry Gubas who passed away in 2019. You know, we lost Dan Arnold earlier this year. Uh, my friend, Mark Bergman, who gave me all the back issues for my Kepler's vault series, he passed away. So, you know, we're, we're going to keep losing, a lot of these stories and it's it's really important to me and fascinating for not for just for posterity but just to hear those stories is is really really great i have to um, talk about one day uh, about marty forsher camera repair yeah yeah marty was a big name too in those days too um jacob deshen uh was was a big name for the new york times i think um so many people peter deckert for the cameron cannon rangefinder author he had some stuff he sent paul rybolt that i think i, I want to share in a future episode too so thank you guys you guys have a great week and uh we will talk to you guys two weeks from today bye everybody okay, take care happy holidays Thanks, everyone. everyone bye right, bye everybody
long as you don't as long as you don't drag out that can of Marmite, we'll be fine. The Vegemite. No, 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 Marmite's crap. Vegemite. Vegemite's the thing you need. 